Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. Welcome to Magnificat Proclaims, presented to you by Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women. I'm Donna Ross, your host for today's program. We pray that today may be a special day in your life as you experience through the personal testimony of our featured guest, the presence of Jesus Christ among us. It is my privilege to introduce our speaker, Karen Moses. Karen's a devoted wife of 25 years and a proud mother of two sons. She was a Sunday Catholic until she had a conversion of heart in 1990. She became a daily communicant, a Magnificat board member, and a prayer group leader. She was nominated for Orange Diocese Catholic Woman of the Year for her outstanding service to the Church. At age 18, during her first semester of nursing school, she witnessed an attempted abortion. God seems to have used the memory of this traumatic event to raise her up as an advocate for life. She began speaking at schools, parishes, and on the radio on behalf of the unborn. For the past six years, working as a hospice nurse, she has witnessed the beauty of redemptive suffering and miracles at the bedside of the dying. Considering God's timing is always perfect, whether we understand it or not, she now finds herself defending the sanctity of life for the elderly, the infirmed, and those with terminal illnesses. She recognizes life as a precious gift of God from the moment of conception until the hour in which we are called home. She will share how the Lord has been faithful and merciful to her and her family through their many trials and triumphs. Karen Moses is one that radiates the joy of the Holy Spirit and the true Marian spirituality that is Magnificat. I am confident you will find this time informative, insightful, and inspiring as we listen to Karen Moses share her testimony.
I want to thank each one of you for answering God's call today because he indeed called you and you have responded. I especially would like to thank Father Raymond and our service team for their great leap of faith today in inviting me to be your speaker. Because having been in ministry with these beautiful people, they know me oh so well. And they know that at times in my past, I have been known to misspeak here and there. A quick example, my father was in the Navy, and his Navy lingo trickled down into our family. And how many of you have heard the term civvies for civilian clothing? And there's also the term skivvies for men's underwear. Well, Father Raymond, Kathleen, and I were on our way back from the from a um, retreat, and lo and behold, we ran into one of our former bishops. Well, we said our hellos, and I said, Oh, dear bishop, I hardly recognized you in your skivvies. <laughs> a little slip of the tongue. Well, as I saw the color drain from Kathleen and Father Raymond's face... As I looked at this dear bishop with his mouth open and just aghast, I then realized perhaps I had misspoken. So quickly we said our goodbyes. He was ever so gracious, thank God, and just smiled and passed it off. But again, for those of you who know me so well, thank you, thank you for this gift today. Well, my testimony is based on the following Fidelity and gratitude. God's fidelity. He has never abandoned me, even when I have abandoned him. He has kept every promise and has provided for my every need. Therefore, especially in preparing my testimony today, I am filled with gratitude for this God who loves me and who loves you just as we are this very day. And he sees us as a work in progress. In 1954, I was born in Philadelphia, the fourth child in five years of Raymond and Ruth Shaper. They gave me the name Karen Ruth. Both of my parents are half Irish and half German. My family and I lived in a small but comfortable row house across the street from my grandparents and down the street from my aunt and uncle, all of whom I just loved dearly. At age three, we moved to Dallas, and my best friend was Ruby Drinkwater, (laughs) y'all. At age six, we all piled into the family's green Chevy station wagon and moved to Torrance, California with all the surfers, and so I stopped saying y'all. Here, my younger brother and sister were born, and now there were three boys and three girls. Being the fourth child in the birth order afforded me much opportunity to get away with quite a lot compared to my older siblings. I never remember having money, but I also never remember being in need. My mother, Ruth, was a Lutheran and converted when she married my father. She had a great love of the church and, in my eyes, was the image of our Blessed Mother, quiet and recollected and always in the service of others and truly happy in her role as mother and wife. My father was outgoing with a great sense of humor but also a strict disciplinarian. I remember as a little girl whenever I would get in trouble— He would stand very close right in front of me and look way down and with that rather stern look on his face, and I would just shake in my boots. 
I remember thinking he was a giant looking up. In the evenings, my parents would gather us together to pray for the family, pray the family rosary. With my father present, needless to say, we didn't fool around. Every Sunday after Mass, we would go to the same restaurant for breakfast. I especially liked this because when the meal was over, I would make sure I was the last to leave. And I would pick up the money my father had left on the table. I could not imagine why my siblings were not as smart as I was. And how I, and now I can't imagine those poor waitresses as they watched our family of eight parade into the same restaurant every week and know that there would be no tip left behind on the table. And my poor father, week after week, just left me that money. My parents sacrificed a great deal to send all of us to Catholic school. We moved to Wilmington, and I began third grade at St. Peter and Paul Grammar School. It was in seventh grade that Sister Eugenia would break the news to me, No, Karen, you will not be a nun. I think she thought it was a bit unruly. During our freshman year at St. Anthony's, um, it was still separated, the boys in one building and the girls in the other. And lo and behold, who would be the freshman girl's religion teacher? Straight from the monastery for 17 years, our very own Father Raymond Skenesny. <laughs> Six feet tall, about 160 pounds, black horn-rimmed glasses, and clearly uncomfortable. With a room full of freshman girls, especially those of us who were lacking in the area of discipline. I remember thinking, this is my lucky day, for not only was Father Raymond teaching well above our freshman intellect, but no one had clued him in as to writing up someone who he kicked out of his classroom. So I would make it my business just about every day to be kicked out. What joy, what freedom. Little did I know that our paths would one day cross again. Poor Father Raymond. Immediately after high school, I followed in the footsteps of my mother and my sister Christine and entered college to become a nurse. It was in nursing school that I would meet the devastation of Roe v. Wade head-on. In the morning sessions, the nursing students would go to the hospital for a few hours to do their clinical studies. One of the patients on the OBGYN floor was a 17-year-old girl in a room all by herself. I have named her Rachel. I was 18 at the time and walked into Rachel's room to see if I could assist her in any way. She looked frightened and alone. Rachel quickly refused and I left the room. The next morning the scene had dramatically changed. For the past 24 hours, Rachel had been receiving a saline solution into the fluid surrounding the baby in her womb. The saline was used to cause an abortion. But this strong little five-month-old baby was delivered, not dead, as expected, but rather still alive and badly burned from the saline. These babies are called cranberry babies, as this is the color of their skin when they are delivered. What chaos, what confusion now swirled around in this delivery room. There was sheer panic as the doctor holding this baby now yelled for the neonatal doctor and nurses. 
I, I was told to get out of the room. Now what was the doctor to do? The orders were given and carried out. This little one, still clinging to life, would be placed in the corner of the neonatal unit. Without heat, without fluids, he would not receive treatment. In a matter of a few hours, this little baby would die alone. We think that our sins affect only ourselves. How many people were dramatically affected that day? And for Rachel herself, we read in Jeremiah 31.15, In Ramah is heard the sound of moaning, a bitter weeping. Rachel mourns her children. She refuses to be consoled because her children are no more. Our Lord's deep love for the unborn and for the mothers of the aborted babies had now pierced my heart. Upon graduating from nursing school, I began to work in the neonatal unit as one, at one of the local hospitals. I worked the 11 to 7 a.m. shift, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. It was pure joy holding the tiny, tiny preemies in the palm of my hand. They were perfectly formed, ten fingers and ten toes. They had simply entered into the world a little early. They would require special treatment, and some would remain with us for months, and we would watch day by day the development that normally took place in the mother's womb. At a Senate hearing, someone once stated that if a plate of glass covered a woman's abdomen instead of the skin, and we would see that tiny baby sucking its thumb, moving about in the mother's womb, there would be no more abortion. On occasion, at work, in the middle of the night, I would receive a phone call from an unnamed woman, simply asking in a broken voice, was my baby a boy or a girl? The first time I received such a call, I had no idea what baby the woman was referring to. I finally realized that this was one of the mothers of an aborted baby. No abortions were performed at this hospital, and she must have called the wrong unit. Her voice was haunting, filled with desperation and pain. I wondered how many other women were having these recurrent nightmares. If only these women and girls received counseling before making such a life-changing decision. If only there were no abortions. At age 22, I would take a leave from nursing and headed to Kansas City, where I would go through training to be a flight attendant for TWA. New York would become my, base, my home base for the next three years. This was 1977, and the radical feminists were in full swing. I am woman, hear me roar, was the chant of the day, and the spirit of Jezebel was empowering the single women, the married women, women working in the church, and the religious. Um, you can read about Jezebel in the Old Testament. Please do. In 1 Kings chapter 21, 5 through 25, and in 2 Kings uh, chapter 9, 30 to 37. Jezebel was the wife of Ahaz, the king of Israel, and she nearly destroyed the Israelite religion by, be, by bringing in pagan gods and goddesses. And so marriages, families, and the church would undergo changes at light speed. Unity, charity, and service of God were being undermined by angry rebellion, division, and denial of the authority of the magisterium of the church. The husband was no longer the head of the family and was lucky to be seen as equal to the wife. The husband jokes were in full force, and the man's role was no longer clearly defined. Most men began to stand back, waiting for the smoke to clear. Self 
was the focus, and I was enjoying much of what Jezebel was offering. The economy was at its peak, affording me the money and the means to go literally wherever I wanted, especially since I worked for an international airline. My roommates and I would ski the Alps every February, sunbathe in the Greek islands every May. We would go wherever it was popular to go at the time. We rubbed elbows every day with celebrities, supermodels, and pro ball players. We were invited to all the nightclubs and parties and ate at the finest restaurants. We would fly into Paris and Rome, and I remember calling home to my mother and her asking me, oh, honey, did you see the Pope or did you go to the Vatican? And I would respond, no, but you should see the beautiful purse and the shoes that I brought. They're just the best Italian leather. Now, as a mother myself, I recognize that pain sigh that my mom would give, knowing that her daughter was not walking with the Lord. I would, however, fly home every Easter and Christmas to attend Mass with my family. And when back in New York, on a rare Sunday, my Catholic roommates and I would attend Mass. My mother's intercession was powerful. That rosary in her hands not only provided me with constant protection, but also would not let me wander too far from Mother Church and her teachings. But I had indeed seen and experienced much of what the world had to offer. At age 25, my heart was turning to marriage and family. I had been praying to St. Anne. You know the prayer, Dear St. Anne, find me a man as fast as you can, and on it goes. (laughs) Very holy I was. hoping to find just the perfect husband. On a leave from the airlines, I met my future husband in the restaurant he was managing when I started working as a waitress. When he said his name was Barry Moses, I remember thinking, hmm, he may have connections in high places. We started dating and announced our engagement. Three months later, we were married in the Catholic Church, and I was so very happy. My husband's mother was Jewish, but agnostic. His father was every nationality but Jewish and had become a believer later in life. However, Barry had a girlfriend in high school whose father was a Baptist minister and brought Barry into the Baptist church and had him teaching Bible study. Barry was a true gentleman and never used foul language. He was truthful, generous to a fault, and extremely loyal to his family and friends. Barry made a comment to me before we were married that grabbed my heart. He said, I'm glad to be marrying a Catholic girl because Catholics don't divorce usually. We would live paycheck to paycheck, and it was amazing to see how quickly the loss of financial independence allowed me to see my total dependence on God. I now returned to Sunday Mass and thought I was very devout for going uh, going to church one hour per week. Barry was a law student, and I was back to nursing, working for a general practice physician. It was now time for my pro-life stance to be challenged. The physician I worked for had been doing abortions after business hours for any of his patients who had come to him in need. This came to my attention one day when one of the patients, an Irish Catholic mother of six, came into our office. It was obvious she had had a mental breakdown. The physician had done an abortion on her incorrectly and she was still pregnant. Again, I was face to face with a mother, all alone, afraid, and completely broken. There was no consoling her, no helping her. After I went home, the physician repeated the abortion, succeeded this time, and I cannot imagine what happened to this woman, her husband, and her six children. 
Her husband did not even know she was pregnant, and even if he had known, there was nothing he could do, no legal right did he have to stop that abortion. This remains the law to, that, to this very day. At this time, I was the main source of income in our household as my husband was still in law school. So the next day, I would return to work very heavy-hearted. I told this physician I could no longer work for him as he was performing abortions. I was convinced he would fire me immediately. Instead, he simply responded, okay, I won't do them anymore. As if it was the first time he had been confronted by the fact that he was doing something seriously wrong. I remember crying on the way home, so grateful to our Lord that I was still employed and that no more babies would die in our office and no more mothers would be hurt. Three years into our marriage, our first baby, James Ryan, was born. It was as a new mother of a crying baby boy that I would beg our blessed mother for her help and intercession raising this little one. I felt her presence very close to me, reassuring and comforting. Three years later, we purchased our first home in the city of Orange, and shortly thereafter, Gregory Stephen was born. We were ecstatic to be blessed with two healthy boys. I was a stay-at-home mom at this time, and I can truly say that all I had seen and experienced in my single life paled when compared to my life now as wife and mother and practicing Catholic. In 1990, a girlfriend mailed me a small newspaper told the story of Medjugorje and the Blessed Mother appearing to six children there. I read the article, picked up the phone, called Christine and my mother, briefly described what I have read, and we immediately booked our flight with a local Catholic travel agent. As our flight date quickly approached, I shared with my husband that I would need to cancel my plans as we did not have the money for the flight. He responded, didn't you tell me that you felt called to go? Just wait and see. Here was my non-Catholic husband telling me to trust. I can tell you with all certainty that at that time in my life, if I had been my husband, I would have just said, better luck next time, maybe we can go another, another time. By the end of the week, he had settled a case and brought in the exact amount of money we needed for the trip. My mother's sister and I made the long trip to the little village, having no idea what to expect. The accommodations were sparse at best, but we were anxious to find out for ourselves if any of the stories we had read were true. Aside from the various unexplained and beautiful physical phenomena we, we witnessed, there was something very genuine and, believ- and believable about the visionaries we had the privilege to speak with. They were patient and humble and were already nine years into this new life. We found this quite remarkable for such young people. They had such a peace about them. My mother, sister, and I each had our own profound experience of God. On our second day in the village, I walked into the back of St. James Church. I felt as though our Blessed Mother had dressed me in my first communion dress, all in white, even down to my patent leather shoes. I could see myself as a seven-year-old girl. In the next moment, I was at the front of the church kneeling before a large, crucified Jesus. But there was no cross, and he was big and muscular, arms outstretched. I understood that it was Jesus' love for me personally that held him to the cross. And he was still God Almighty and powerful, but he chose death that I might live with him forever. I sobbed and I sobbed. Every time the priest would hold up the host at communion, I would sob again. Children in the church would stare at me, but I couldn't stop crying. 
to this day, I don't know what all the crying was about, but I know that healing was taking place and I was a new creation. And my mother and sister had their own personal experiences and we came home on fire. I would now begin to struggle with the longing for a Catholic husband who would share in my newfound enthusiasm. I remember praying, apparently a bit too self-righteously, Oh Jesus, if only my husband could share in the faith that I have. And almost audibly, our Lord responded, Ah yes, Karen, and someday you may have the charity your husband has. I can still feel the sting of that correction. Our Lord then reminded me that Barry never spoke badly about anyone, and I was still comfortable with engaging in gossip. Jesus now wanted me to look only at myself. The slow, painful process would begin, and by his grace alone could the self begin to die. One night after Barry and the boys had gone to bed, I stayed up, as I had been doing now, to pray and read scripture. I could suddenly feel the eerie presence of Satan. I was frozen with fear as he tempted me interiorly, that if I remained in prayer that night, away from my husband, that the next day Barry would file for divorce. The temptation continued that I had become a Jesus fanatic, and Barry could no longer relate to me. I would have to choose Jesus or my husband. I knew there was no turning back for me now, and I chose to stay and pray, whatever the cost would be. My heart was breaking as I went to bed. The next day I received a bouquet of flowers from my husband who never would send flowers without an occasion. God was testing me and proved his fidelity. Shortly thereafter, I was invited by Kathleen to join a Medjugorje prayer group that was meeting in our neighborhood on Friday nights. After some reluctance, I began to attend. What a blessing this group would be in my life. My sister Christine would soon join, and this group would become our spiritual family. We would attend the FCRC conferences every year and became involved in the charismatic renewal. Again, we were on fire, and the Holy Spirit would lead us deeper into the sacred and immaculate hearts. Of course, more death of self would follow, for the Marian spirit could not coexist with the Jezebel spirit. I had much to learn. Sister Marie Therese, our beloved, a member of the prayer group, began organizing pilgrimages each year to various sites, such as the Holy Land, Fatima, Avila, Rome, and Lourdes. It was on our Lourdes pilgrimage that Kathleen and I would be reintroduced to Father Raymond. Isn't it amazing how God allows us to deal with our past sins, especially, for me, those of high school? These, pil- these pilgrimages would not only enrich us spiritually, but the bond between the members of the prayer group would grow ever stronger. In 1994, the service team for the Orange County Queen of Peace Magnificat would invite me to become a member of the team. I would now enter into another spiritual family who would also teach, nurture, and inspire me to grow in the Holy Spirit and fully embrace the richness of the Marian spirituality. Father Raymond was the spiritual director for the team, and I no longer ditched. At age 40, what maturity. Magnificat had new chapters opening all across the United States and had even gone international. The Central Service Team had never dreamed this movement would grow so quickly. At the international conferences in New Orleans, we would meet up with women from all the various chapters, and I was so taken by their enthusiasm and their joy. They were genuine and gracious, and most of all, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I wanted what they had. We learned that the gifts, graces, and virtues of the Holy Spirit were available to everyone who wanted them. 
Desire was the key. The Holy Spirit was ready and willing to pour out these gifts for us today, just as he had done for all of those in the upper room in Pentecost and for the early church. Nothing had changed. In John 6, 53 and 56, Jesus tells us, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. These scripture verses had come to life for me. The Eucharist had had truly become my spiritual nourishment and therefore I had become a daily communicant. If I could not attend Mass on a given day, this became a great deprivation and I would hunger and thirst for the Eucharist. The body and blood of Christ is my strength, my nourishment, that which sustains me in all that I will encounter and do each day. The liturgy and daily readings would provide guidance and insight and so often lift me from whatever burdens might be weighing me down. Pray, pray, pray. I now understood why this was a necessity. I was given this example. If I wanted to learn to speak Spanish, I must attend Spanish classes. The more I would attend, the more fluent I would become, the more I would understand what was being said. If I wanted to recognize the still, quiet voice of the Holy Spirit and truly understand what he was saying to me, I must attend the school of love. I would need to go before the tabernacle, if at all possible, each day and empty myself and simply listen. The Holy Spirit would teach me and guide me. He would help me to discern that which was God's will versus what was my own will. This was quite a leap for me because I was really enjoying operating under my own will. The Holy Spirit would also teach me when to be still and let the battle be the Lord's. He would repeat one central theme above all else. Choose love. The unborn babies, their mothers and fathers would continually be brought into my prayers, as would the doctors and the nurses who performed the abortions. One afternoon, a close friend of ours, a freshman girl at a local public high school, came over to our house very upset. Her biology teacher had asked how many students are pro-life. This young girl was the only one who raised her hand, and the teacher proceeded to mock and belittle her in front of the entire class. I was heartsick that this could happen. Frustrated by knowing I could do nothing at the time to change our public schools, I went to the local Catholic elementary school where my sons and nephews attended and asked if I could speak to the 8th grade on their upcoming retreat day. The principal and teachers were very supportive, and this would be my first pro-life talk. After introducing myself to the class, I asked how many of them were pro-life and pro-abortion. To my amazement, they were evenly split. This accurately reflects the polls that are taken of of our Catholic population. After sharing my nursing experience and many facts about abortion, many of the children who said they were for abortion said they just did not know. They thought this was a rescue for girls who were in trouble, but now they had thought differently. If we keep silent, desiring not to make waves and to be politically correct, Where will people hear the truth about the sanctity of life? On TV? In our newspapers? Clearly not. God provides the opportunities, and we are asked to respond without fear or intimidation. 
I have been speaking to the youth now for 10 years and have been invited to speak at our parish and this past year on St. Joseph Radio. God is asking every one of us to be defenders of the unborn and their mothers in whatever capacity he calls us. If we shy away, who will speak out? Who will be their voice? Frederica Matthews Green wrote in her book that these girls and women are not making a choice like choosing chocolate or vanilla. These women are, are much rather like an animal that is trapped and must chew off its own leg. They are frightened and they are desperate. During this time, I had been working for nine years part-time at a brain injury rehab program nearby home. And I loved the job and I loved those I worked with. Out of the blue, I felt called to begin hospice nursing, which is the care of those who are terminally ill and ultimately those who are dying. I knew very little about hospice care, but as I prayed about this decision, I kept getting Jesus of mercy and St. Faustina. I was reminded of St. Faustina praying the chaplet of divine mercy at the bedside of the dying and the powerful promises associated with the chaplet. I knew that Jesus and St. Faustina would give me their guidance and company. So I went down to one of the local hospice programs and started work two weeks later. My specific role was to go into the homes of those who were actively dying. At first I was nervous and unsure, but quickly saw the treasured gift that God was giving me. I would be present at the bedside on that most important day of a person's life, when they would be called home. This would give me the opportunity to pray the chaplet of divine mercy, provide comfort, support, and encouragement to both the person dying and their grieving family. Our Lord would open my eyes to his perfect timing. He knows the exact moment our soul is ready to enter into his embrace. God would allow me to witness healing of relationships in families, even in those where the loved one was just lying in a coma, perfectly still. Although they would be still, God would be working. I would see people open their hearts to God and receive his grace, sometimes even the last few minutes of their life. It has been a privilege to be at the bedside of truly humble and holy people. One of my patients was a little poor man from South America. By our standards, his life was unremarkable, and he was known only by his family and a small group of friends. This man had a small statue of Our Lady of Fatima at his bedstand. His daughter told me he had a great devotion to Our Lady, so we would pray the rosary at his bedside. When his hour had come and he breathed his last breath, his eyes opened slowly and he looked up towards the ceiling. His daughter began to cry aloud. I placed my hand on her shoulder and asked her to look into her father's eyes. There was the image of Our Lady of Fatima. His blessed mother did not disappoint him. God was, always allow- God was allowing me to see man's dignity from the moment of his conception and now at the very hour of his death. Every moment is precious. He would bring this truth to me personally now. On October 25th of this past year, I received a phone call from my son Ryan telling me that my 19-year-old nephew Tyler had been in a serious motorcycle accident and he had been airlifted to the nearest trauma hospital, which was about an hour and a half from our home. Tyler and my two sons were very close in age, and they had grown up together much like brothers. Ryan's voice was shaking as he spoke. We notified the rest of the family and went and picked up my parents. 
who Tyler had been living with. When we arrived at the hospital, Tyler's nurse informed us that he had been rushed into surgery. He had sustained a large hematoma on the left side of his brain and was non-responsive. Tyler had been dirt bike riding in the desert with about 20 of his friends. They were heroic in their care of Tyler as they waited for the, uh, help to arrive. They formed a circle around him, held hands, and began to pray. The helicopter airlift was called Mercy Flight. Following Tyler's surgery, he would, lie, he would lie in a coma in the critical care unit with a ventilator to breathe for him, and he had every tube and drain you can have. Tyler had worn the best riding equipment head to toe and did not have a scratch on him. But even the heavily padded helmet could not protect his brain from the blunt, heavy blow his wheel would deliver after his dirt bike had flipped into the air. As the nurses performed their neurological checks, Tyler showed little sign of life. Christine and I had called the prayer group, and the rest of the family had called their various prayer warriors, and the plea for prayers, rosaries, and masses went out from there. Over the next few days, we would hear of heaven being flooded with the prayers from various orders of priests and religious, grammar schools, high schools, from those closest to us and those we had never met. They were all praying for Tyler and the family. The prayers wrapped around us like a warm blanket. Our dear friend who works with the Franciscans in the Holy Land immediately called and had a mass said on Calvary. How appropriate. God was sustaining us as we watched, waited, and prayed. Jesus, mercy, Mother Mary, please watch over Tyler. I had the image of Tyler's bed at home. Years ago, my mother had placed on it, pinned to his pillow, the uh, miraculous medal. On his headboard, she had placed a rosary. Tyler had never removed either one of those. I knew Our Lady now stood over Tyler as he lay in the hospital bed. As the first night came and went, the halls were filled with family and friends. But as the next afternoon approached, I could see Tyler's condition becoming more unstable. I went to his nurse and told her what I was observing, and with sorrow and compassion in her voice, she confirmed my worst fear. Tyler was dying, and they had done all they could do. They would keep him, they would do their best to keep him comfortable. I immediately left the hospital and checked into a nearby hotel room trying to assimilate what was happening. I called home. Tyler's condition was more serious than expected. They were praying nonstop, and our priests were offering their masses for Tyler. It was the 3 o'clock hour, and I telephoned Christine at the hospital. She shared that our Lord had placed on our heart my mercy, and she felt that Tyler would be leaving us soon. We would keep this to ourselves and not alarm the rest of the family, as there was nothing to be done but to pray and beg for a miracle. Late that evening, Christine and I would go to Tyler's bedside. I now began to understand the pain of Abraham as God asked him to sacrifice his son, to be in agreement with God's perfect will, no matter what the cost. This was easier said than done. I would find, however, that God's grace is sufficient in all things. The heavier the cross, the greater the grace. Christine and I prayed the chaplet of divine mercy, then reminisced about the treasured gift Tyler had been in our family. We blessed Tyler with holy oil. He had received the anointing of the sick that afternoon. Thank God for our priests. Without them, we have no peace, no sacraments. Thank God for our priests. 
Through our tears, we surrendered Tyler over to the Father, who had created him and loved Tyler even more than we did. The next evening, Tyler would undergo his second emergency craniotomy. Both times, the best neurosurgeon in the county just happened to be at the hospital and perform the surgeries. We were back at square one, and Tyler was as unstable as ever. Another three days would pass with no change. We were physically numb. But the sense of union with Jesus on the cross brought an interior peace in spite of the pain. God's ways clearly are not our ways. Our Lord had taken me all over the world in my youth, and now he had taken us to Calvary. On the seventh day, Tyler's condition improved enough to bring us the hope that he would survive. He would remain in a coma for another week, then gradually begin to wake up. The days were, in, were intense with high highs and low lows, and our families would struggle to remain on the even plane. One of my favorite prayers from Teresa of Avila, Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing make you afraid. All things are passing. God alone never changes. Patience gains all things. If you have God, you will want for nothing. I would repeat this prayer along with, Jesus, I trust in you. As Tyler's condition stabilized, we praised God for his infinite mercy. We also thanked our Blessed Mother profusely, as we had come to believe that it was through her intercession and pleading to her son, much like we read about in the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus had performed another miracle. Oh, thank you, good, good Jesus. Thank you, dear Blessed Mother. Tyler was never supposed to walk again. He is walking. Tyler was never supposed to talk again. He is talking. Each day is its own miracle. Please continue to hold him in your prayers as his, as his recovery continues. I would never have chosen this cross, but our Lord has now shown me its beauty. I am able to embrace the cross through the grace that God gives and trust that Jesus uses all things for good. Before I close, I want to share something extremely important with you. Over the past year, I have been seeing something I have not witnessed in 29 years of nursing. My breast cancer patients used to be older women, and many of them were treated successfully and survived. Now in hospice, I was caring for young women, 29, 40, 41. These women were all dying as I held their little toddlers and attempted to console their husbands. Their breast cancer was spreading from breast to lymph gland to bone to brain. I was asking our Lord, what is happening here? I ran into Lou Cortese from St. Joseph's Radio. She handed me a booklet entitled, Breast Cancer, Risks and Prevention. And she said to me, you have got to read this. You will not believe it. The booklet was written by two doctors, Angela Lanfranchi and Joel Brind. They had compiled research from as far back as 1957, showing the link between abortion and breast cancer. I want to make a point very clearly here. It's very important that we, re- remain, re- that we always remember this. Not all women, young or older, who have breast cancer have had abortions. 
We know that there are other contributing factors such as family history, use of birth control pills, and estrogen replacement that contribute to the increased risk of breast cancer. I have two first cousins who, by the age of 40, both had uh, been diagnosed with breast cancer. Neither of them had abortions, but we do have a family history. As I read the booklet, then listened to the CDs, I heard Dr. Lanfranchi state that the reason she became involved was that after 30 years of practice, she had been observing the shift in her breast cancer patients go from grandmothers to 30-year-olds with toddlers, and they too were dying. Dr. Lanfranchi is a breast surgeon, so this was the catalyst for her own research and subsequent collaboration with Dr. Brind. He had, for many years, been researching the effects of hormones on reproduction. Very briefly, how does an abortion increase the risk for a woman to have breast cancer? Women are born with type 1 cells in their milk glands, which develop into type 2 at puberty. These type 1 and type 2 glands are still primitive and susceptible to carcinogens. During the third trimester of pregnancy, the breast glands mature into type 3 and type 4 glands and are much more resistant to carcinogens. So type 1 and type 2 are susceptible to cancer, type 3 and type 4 are resistant. During a normal pregnancy, estrogen levels rise 2,000% by the end of the first trimester. Simply stated, The more estrogen your breasts are exposed to over your lifetime, the higher your risk of breast cancer. During the first two trimesters, there is an increased number of immature type 1 and type 2 glands. However, it is during the third trimester that the breast glands mature into the type 3 and type 4 that are resistant. If a woman miscarries during the first trimester, this does not increase her risk for breast cancer because miscarriages are associated with low estrogen and do not cause an increase of type 1 and type 2 glands. However, if a woman has an induced abortion between 9 and 24 weeks, breast glands do not mature to type 3 and 4. If this woman is below the age of 18 and has an abortion, she has a 30% risk of having cancer. If either of her parents have a relative, either parent has a relative who has breast cancer, she is almost guaranteed to develop breast cancer within her lifetime. This obviously is the most startling fact presented in this research, but there are many other important findings that I hope you will read about yourselves when you go home. All of this is, uh, will be provided, all the materials will be provided afterwards. The immediate question raised is why then, when 13 out of 15 studies in the United States have shown this increased risk to be true, why are we not hearing about this most relevant women's issue? While being interviewed, both Dr. Lanfranchi and Dr. Brin gave this example. Janet Daling, a well-respected epidemiologist, was funded by the National Cancer Institute to perform a study on the abortion breast cancer link. Janet herself was pro-choice and at the same time had three sisters who had breast cancer and had had abortions. Her findings supported the abortion breast cancer link. When the study was printed in the medical journal, 
the National Cancer Institute wrote an editorial at the end of the study stating that the research was probably flawed and that, quote, it is difficult to see how this information will be useful to the public. How about saving the lives of our daughters, granddaughters, and nieces? This is useful. Breast cancer is the most common cause of death in middle-aged women, and it's the most common surgical procedure. The National Cancer Institute consistently denies the the, the findings of the abortion breast cancer link. When Dr. Lanfranchi called Janet Daling to speak at a conference about her research, she stated, I won't talk about it. I will not have any more stones thrown at me. She had been vilified. Physicians certainly do not want to hear that they've been hurting their patients. Whatever their many reasons may be, how does this affect us, other than making us aware for ourselves and our families? I would ask each one of us to take this to prayer and ask our Lord to enlighten you. Trust me, he will answer you, for time is short and the need is so great. I believe the day is coming when our pro-abortion laws will be outlawed. It may not be under the pro-life banner, but rather under women's rights and a cause such as the abortion breast cancer link. We know that the Immaculate Heart will triumph. Will we be warriors in her army? How perfect the Vatican Council's message that was delivered on December 8th states, And now it is to you that we address ourselves, women of all states, girls, wives, mothers, and widows, to you also, consecrated virgins and women living alone, You constitute half of the immense human family. As you know, the church is proud to have glorified and liberated woman, and in the course of the centuries, in diversity of characters, to have brought into relief her basic equality with man. But the hour is coming, in fact has come, when the vocation of woman is being achieved in its fullness, the hour in which woman acquires in the world an influence an effect, and a power never hitherto achieved. That is why at this moment, when the human race is undergoing so deep a transformation, women impregnated with the spirit of the gospel can do much to aid mankind in not falling. Women, you who know how to make truth sweet, tender, and accessible, make it your task to bring the spirit of the council into institutions, schools, home, and daily life. Women of the entire universe, whether Christian or non-believing, you to whom life is entrusted at this grave moment in history, it is for you to save the peace of the world. What a challenge. This was, this was given to the public on December 8, 1965, by the Second Vatican Council. What foresight, how the Holy Spirit had gone before them, how it was reflected at that time, but now even more so it seems to be true for us. So again, I ask each one of you to pray and to answer his call, because everyone, everyone is called in whatever capacity God chooses. He needs and can use us all. Thank you so much for today.
We hope you've been touched by Karen Moses' inspiring testimony. It isn't easy to share so deeply, and we thank her for truly proclaiming his marvelous deeds. And for more information or a copy of today's broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. Once again, Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, zip code 92859. And for some of you, it might be easier to call. So feel free to call us at 800-500-4556. If you would like to have more information about the Magnificat ministry, including a location of a Magnificat chapter in your area, you can call 504-828-MARY. That's 504-828-MARY. Or visit the Magnificat website at www.magnificat-ministry.org. On behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Remember, Magnificat proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in His peace.
Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.